Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. When I was a kid, I spent a lot more time in fiction than in reality. The big rock and the flower bed in front of our house was not landscaping, but my fairy princess throne. The woods behind our house were the passage to Narnia or the bridge to Terabithia, depending on the day. And when I was in the company of my siblings and cousins who lived just down the road, I was not Laura, but Marta. I'm referring, of course, to Marta von Trapp, the second youngest child in The Sound of Music, a story I wanted to live inside more than any other. When I was nine years old, I came pretty close. In the only time in my life when I can remember my dad traveling to Europe for work, he had two different meetings in two different European countries that were five weeks apart. Most of our trips up until then had been to visit my grandparents in Nebraska, where we'd often drive seven hours straight through the night so that we could arrive at their farm by daylight. But because of the Von Trapp family and Maria, I'd been dreaming of Austria for years. In an act of bravery and temporary insanity, my mom single-handedly planned a trip to Europe, not just for our family, but for my grandparents, my aunt and uncle, and my three cousins, which was perfect because we could only be the Von Trapp children if we were all together. While my dad was attending his first meeting, my mom rented a 12-passenger van and led the charge to some of the places she'd been dreaming of all her life, places like the new Schwanstein Castle, the one that the Disney castle was modeled on, the Swiss Alps, and, you guessed it, Salzburg, Austria, the home of the real and fictional Von Trapp families. When I look back at that trip now, I am flabbergasted that my mom went through with it. None of us were experienced travelers, and our group included seven children and two senior citizens. In retrospect, she probably questioned the wisdom of that plan many times. Even though my memories of that trip are rose-colored and glowy, I do remember some moments of frustration when all of us kids were way more interested in the castle gift shop than the castle itself. I'm sure that driving that van on the Autobahn was beyond stressful, especially since there were whole countries for her to cross on our way to meet my dad. Our world is so globalized now that it's easy to forget that not too many years ago, Going to another country meant that no one there could understand you. Our saving grace on that trip was Trixie, a young Austrian woman who spoke English and who my mom somehow found and convinced to come on the trip with us as a translator. Trixie was studying at the university in Minneapolis at that time, and she proved to be an essential guide. I asked my mom about this trip recently, sure that it must have cost a fortune, but she said that thanks to Trixie, it was affordable. This was pre-internet life, so they booked no accommodations in advance. Each time they arrived in some little mountain town, Trixie would chat up the first person she saw, who would point us in the direction of someplace to stay, usually in someone's home. I remember making new friends in each place, exchanging in smiles what we couldn't in words. For the Von Trapp stand-ins, who sang through the entire Sound of Music score as we drove, Trixie was our very own Maria. We even called her our governess, though I don't think that was a word that anyone was using outside of the movie. 
Trixie introduced us to Haribo gummy bears, which back then you couldn't find anywhere except Europe, and taught us how to say Guten Tag and all Wiedersehen. And we loved her. She was there when we sang Do Re Mi on the same steps where the Von Trapp kids sang it. When we jumped from one gazebo bench to the next singing, I am 16 going on 17. We were living the Von Trapp dream we'd always wanted to. And Trixie was right there with us. Things apparently went so well that when we returned from the trip, my parents offered to pay Trixie's college tuition and provide room and board in exchange for helping them out with us kids. My older siblings and I were at that point in childhood where piano lessons and soccer and church youth group had begun to crowd the family schedule. And with my dad working all the time, my mom was struggling to figure out how to get us where we needed to be while also taking care of my little brother, who was still a preschooler. At the time, having Trixie in our lives felt like our Sound of Music dream come true. As a parent of three young kids now, I see the situation very differently. I'm guessing my mom had reached a breaking point and needed help desperately. The house we lived in had a separate but connected one-bedroom apartment, since the previous owners had grandparents living with them. Though it would be many years before my own grandparents moved in with us, we always called it the mother-in-law apartment, a term I now find funny and odd. It's what we all still call it today. It was a space we rarely went in as kids, but it was often occupied by visitors from all over the world, doctors from Kenya, a widower who'd lost his wife, or friends of my parents from some part of their lives that predated us. Within a matter of months, the mother-in-law apartment became Trixie's, and she became our governess. At first, it was all just as dreamy as we'd imagined. Somehow Trixie found Haribo gummies in the U.S. and would occasionally gift them to us. She read the original Grimm's fairy tales to us from ancient volumes, translating the German to English on the spot. She taught us how to knit, how to say colors in German. To us, she seemed magical, like Maria. And for a while, our house was more peaceful because of her. But at some point over the course of the next two years, the tide began to turn. It might have begun with my older siblings, who noticed that when Trixie left with the credit card my parents gave her to buy groceries, she sometimes came home with extra stuff. Stuff like ice cream and candy. Stuff Trixie bought for herself, not for us. Trixie let her leg hair grow long, something my siblings and I found curious at first, but eventually became a strike against her. One day, in a burst of anger and creativity, my brother sketched a crude naked drawing of Trixie with hairy legs and armpits. The drawing was found by Trixie, who showed it to my parents, who were less than delighted to see what their son had done. They disciplined him, which of course did nothing to improve his relationship with Trixie. By then, even my parents were starting to wonder if their decision to have Trixie come live with us was a wise one. Those fairy tales she read to us turned out to be frequently terrifying. The Little Mermaid story I learned wasn't the busty girl with the gorgeous maid of orange hair, but the one by Hans Christian Andersen, where she turned into sea foam after the prince married someone else. I still vividly remember the tale of Bluebeard, who slaughtered one wife after another, and then kept their bodies locked up in an underground chamber. 
Once, on Trixie's recommendation, our family watched an Austrian film together. And much to my parents' surprise, we had our first experience of viewing full frontal male nudity. My parents looked at us, mortified, and then we all broke out into hysterics. Once, when my little brother pulled down his pants and peed on the kitchen floor, Trixie rubbed his nose in it, which, I have to admit, was an effective form of discipline, since I can't remember him ever doing it again. But I don't think it went over all that well with any of us. Even so, I liked Trixie. I didn't mind her tragic and scary fairy tales. I might have been loyal to the end if Trixie hadn't started excluding me from her impromptu gifts, which in the end were only for my little brother, who was in a particularly adorable stage of childhood. It became abundantly clear who her favorite was. She bought him not just gummies, but Star Wars action figures that he was too young to care about, but that I desperately coveted. It tapped into all of my middle kid insecurities about feeling left out and overlooked. And so one afternoon, I turned to the dark side. Trixie, wherever you are, I'm sorry. To this day, I feel bad about what I'm about to tell you next. I wish I could say that I'm embellishing the details for the sake of comedy. Unfortunately, I am not. I recall a specific afternoon when the plan to take down Trixie began. This was no Von Trapp Fogs in the bedsheet scenario. This was war. There was a rectangle of pasture enclosed by a split rail fence by the road in front of our house. And on that particular afternoon, all four of us kids were testing our balance, walking carefully on the top railing, which served as a very narrow and often unstable balance beam. My older siblings could make it all the way around without falling off, but I was new to the trick and had to keep hopping back on again, trying to keep up. I recall my brother being particularly angry, since this was soon after the naked drawing incident. We had also recently gotten into trouble with Trixie when she tattled on us after we somehow got the Nintendo down from the cupboard where it was hidden and gluttonously consumed video games and frozen pizzas that we had heated in the oven all by ourselves, a feat that now seems incredible to me, since in theory, Trixie should have been there the whole time watching us. Those conversations were an illicit thrill, because though I never doubted that my siblings loved me, My middle kid struggles meant that I was always feeling left out. Being included in the plotting made me feel like I had finally been accepted into a club I hadn't known existed, but still longed to be a part of. Though I am sorry for what came next for Trixie's sake, I'm also grateful, because the demise of Trixie finally made my siblings and me a team. Our plan was one that required patience. In my memory, we waited days or even weeks to execute it. But when the moment of opportunity came, we were ready. It was a Sunday afternoon and the house was quiet. Trixie had made fried rice for dinner and it was keeping warm in one of those electric walks that used to be so big in the 80s. This, like the Nintendo and frozen pizza incident, is a moment when I look back and think, where was everybody? It seems unlikely to me that my parents and Trixie were all gone, that us kids had been left to fend for ourselves. 
Maybe they were outside gardening or taking a shower or cleaning out the garage. In any case, we were unsupervised, and the mother-in-law apartment was unoccupied. As quickly and quietly as we could, we raided the kitchen cupboards. We grabbed canisters of flour, bottles of vinegar, anything we could find. The smellier, the better. Then we crept over to Trixie's bathroom, where we put bread flour in her face powder, fish sauce in her perfume. Anything we could tamper with, we did. Then we returned to the kitchen. There was that enormous wok of fried rice, enough to feed our family three times over. We looked at each other knowingly and nodded. We lifted the lid and poured in obscene amounts of salt and a blend of the other condiments we were carrying as well. Then we carefully stirred the rice, put the lid back on, and put away the kitchen ingredients in the cupboard. We were very quiet as we sat around the dinner table that evening, waiting for someone to take the first bite. We didn't look at each other because we knew that giggling would ruin everything. Our thinking went something like this. If mom and dad taste this terrible dinner that Trixie made, they'll decide that it's finally time to let her go. At first, it seemed like the plan was working. My mom took the first bite, hesitated, grimaced, and then blurted, Ugh, this is disgusting. What is this? Trixie started to cry. My siblings and I looked at our hands, avoiding eye contact. There was a lot of confused and tearful discussion, but somehow the adults got to the bottom of it. Maybe we even caved and admitted what we'd done. This part is blurry for me. What I do remember is that we all felt terrible for what we'd done. Suddenly, our crafty sabotage didn't seem clever but cruel. Trixie was absolved for the awful dinner, and our punishment was that we had to eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner until it was gone. My mom was right. It was disgusting. And we finished every last bite of it. In my memory, Trixie was dismissed immediately and no one was hired to replace her. When I called my mom to check my memory of this story, she said that they did not fire her over this, but a questionable judgment call she'd made later over something that had nothing to do with us. I'm sure that my parents made us apologize profusely and that whatever we said was not enough. I hope that wherever Trixie is, she can forgive us for being so awful. And if she can't, I understand. But also, I can't wish the memory away. There's a part of me that feels deeply grateful to Trixie, because it was the first time I can remember feeling like my siblings and I were allies, like we were a team. Somewhere in our effort to fight a common enemy without our parents' involvement, we became friends. Though my siblings and I have laughed over that story many, many times over the years, I hadn't thought about it for a long time until just the other day when I found my kids conspiring, getting into a stash of juice boxes reserved for birthdays. Later, after their lights were out for the night and their door was closed, I could hear them whispering. I knew whatever they were up to, it probably wasn't something they were supposed to be doing. But also, 
it was a relief to hear them working together, to know that even though they've spent a lot of this time of quarantine fighting, they're also learning how to be a team. As children, siblings are the people in this world who get to see our worst parts up close. And this can mean that there is some pretty awful fighting, that we sometimes feel left out or make bad choices. But also, we learn from our siblings how to work through the hard things, how to band together and support each other, and be there for each other when it counts most. My siblings and I still fight sometimes, decades later. Beyond Nate and the kids, they are still the ones who see me most often at my worst. I don't live near any of my siblings now, and sometimes I still feel left out. There's a lot of life they share just by proximity. Even so, my siblings are still the ones who push me the hardest to grow. And most of all, they are terrific friends. People who will sometimes fight with me, but who will also fight for me. Whether you are a parent with kids fighting or a grown adult with siblings who don't always feel like friends, my daily gift of sanity to you today is to remember that the people who love you enough to fight with you are also the people most able to help you grow. Before I close, I want to thank Jennifer Sheedy and another friend in California who wishes to remain anonymous. Your donations to Shelter in Place are making it possible for my family to survive this time of quarantine and continue to put out these daily episodes. Thank you to all of you who continue to support the podcast in other ways as well, by sharing it with others, by subscribing, by rating and reviewing it, and by using the code SHELTER when you buy wine from brickandmortarwines.com and winesforchange.com. Even as I do my best to deliver this daily gift of sanity to you, your support and encouragement has kept me going. If you've enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider leaving a rating and a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. As always, you can find the show notes for each episode at laurajoycedavis.com. The Shelter in Place music was composed by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions. The Shelter in Place artwork was created by Sarah Edgel. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.